0: Hello, and welcome to The Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. Uh, you can check us and other podcasts out at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And with that, I'll turn it over to Sean to introduce the topic today.
1: Yeah, so today we'll be talking about uh, Romans 7 and um, some of the controversies over interpret- uh, the interpretation of that passage. Um uh, there's been a lot of different interpretations about uh, what's going on there, who Paul is referring to uh, when he speaks there. Uh, we'll be presenting the view that this is Paul currently as he's writing; he's describing himself, and we'll mostly be interacting with um, the view that uh, this is um, Paul speaking as a as he was as an unbeliever. But uh, we'll be going through all that, and we hope that it's an edifying conversation.
0: Thanks, Sean. So we'll be talking about um, first of all some of the historical understandings of this passage, um, and then we'll dive into an exegetical discussion. Um, Like Sean said, we take the view. We'll just say we take the view that this is talking about a believer, um, not an unbeliever, and we will uh, hopefully show that today as we go through the text. We'll be going through verses fourteen through twenty-five, kind of more at a high level, not uh, necessarily verse by verse. Um, But some history surrounding it. So um, there is actually a long tradition as it relates to uh, understanding verses 14 through 25, all the way back uh, to the early church fathers. This was in uh, a topic that was discussed. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Romans, I have one of the volumes uh, here. This is on exposition of chapter seven, verse one through chapter eight, verse four. He talks about uh, some of the history here. He says on page 177, it is generally agreed that most of the fathers of the church during the first three centuries regarded these verses as being a description of the unregenerate man. So by and large, the understanding was this was not about a believer. This was about an unregenerate man. And it really, um, and, I, and I think there were some exceptions to that, um, but by and large, this was the accepted view. Um, and then comes along Augustine, who held to the understanding of the early patristic fathers that this was about an unbeliever, but then changed his mind later on. Um, you can see this, Lloyd-Jones talks about this, um, but Calvin and his commentary on Romans also discusses this too. And I'm going to read this section um, from Calvin's commentary on Romans. Uh, he says, the inexperienced who consider not the subject which the apostle handles, nor the plan which he pursues. Imagine, That the character of man by nature is here described, and indeed there is a similar description of human nature given to us by the philosophers. But scripture philosophizes much deeper, for it finds that nothing has remained in the heart of man but corruption since the time in which Adam lost the image of God. So when the sophisters wish to define free will or to form an estimate of what the power of nature can do, they fix on this passage. But Paul, as I have already said, does not here set before us, simply the na- the natural man, but in his own person describes what is the weakness of the faithful and how great it is. And then he talks about Augustine. Augustine was for a time involved in the common error, but after having more clearly examined the passage, he not only retracted what he had falsely taught, but in his first book to Boniface, he proves by many strong reasons that what is said cannot be applied to any but to the regenerate. And we shall now endeavor to make our readers clearly see that such is the case. And then he goes on to make his case of why this is talking about believer. But he mentions Augustine. Augustine held the patristic view, but then later changed his mind, coming to an understanding that this was about um, a believer. And it's clear to see that Calvin also um, taught this as well, that this was about a believer. And then you jump forward to the Reformation. I've already mentioned Calvin, but we also see... Um, the reformers in general seem to hold uh, that this was about a believer too. Um, On the same page, Lloyd-Jones talks about this. He says, The Protestant reformers and the Puritans and all who have followed them have almost without exception followed the second exposition of Augustine. In other words, they have taught that this is a description of the regenerate man. We uh, have two well-known examples of this in Charles Hodge and Robert Haldane, whose commentaries I have so frequently recommended and praise. They both take the view that this is a description of the regenerate man, and the Reformed tradition of exposition has generally followed that course. On the other hand, those who have followed the different theological system commonly called the Arminian have generally taught that this is a description of the unregenerate man, the view that was taken by the patristic fathers. You can see how it it shifted from You know, this was the general view of the church. Now it was those who were dissenting against the reformers who were holding to this view. And by and large, the reformers were holding to the view that this was an unregenerate man. Kind of an interesting play of events there. Um, And that last section was from page 178. Um, But we, we see this reaffirmed in our own confession. And I, you could probably find this in the Westminster. I'd have to go back and check. But in our own confession on chapter in chapter 13, paragraph 3, it says, and this is the chapter, um, I think it's on sanctification. Uh, it says, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate um, part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness and the fear of God, pressing after, in heavenly life, in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word hath prescribed them. Now, this in and of itself doesn't say anything about Romans 7, but the very first proof text that is used in this paragraph is Romans 7.23. So this means is that the writers of our confession clearly saw this, or at least the, the signers did. They saw this section in Romans 7 as speaking about the believer's struggle with sin and not characteristic of an unbeliever. So we do see quite a long tradition really from Augustine um, onward because the the reformers were following the Augustinian uh, understanding of this passage. And it's really following a long tradition and being received down. Now that doesn't necessarily make it right. Ultimately the scriptures are our authority and uh, we have to make sure that this tradition is consistent with the scriptures um, but it is helpful to see um, these historical, studying historical theology and seeing, you know, where these different interpretations kind of have fallen throughout church history. Um, so that kind of uh, leads us into our discussion of the passage itself. Um, so before we dive into the exegesis, I want to just highlight some different views. And I don't know if this is an exhaustive uh, list of views, but it should provide um, some baseline of where we are. So. The The understanding of this passage that Paul could be a pagan or he's referring to a pagan or an underrepresented person, um, someone who's a Christian, but maybe is in an unhealthy state. They're not a mature Christian or they're maybe they're a backslidden Christian. They're not in a healthy state either way, but they are a believer. Um, it could be someone who has been just awakened to their spiritual need and not yet justified. Maybe they're just coming to understand these things, but they haven't received um, the the gospel yet they're kind of in this limbo state for lack of a better term, or it could be the everyday struggle with sin that Christians have. Therefore, describing the everyday um, Christian, or this could be understood and um, as uh, talking about a pre New Covenant um, Jew who is saved, and we've heard that position before. Um, so these are some maybe some different views, and there might be more. And Sean, I don't know if you know of any more besides um, that.
1: Not off the top of my head, I was talking uh, with uh, with one of my roommates, um, and he was saying that in, I think it was in the uh, 17th century there were up to like 14 different views that were being discussed. Um, so quite quite a few, but um, no, I I don't know the specifics of all of this.
0: Okay, but I, I would say the t- probably the two primary views are he's an unbeliever and he's a believer. Yeah. Those are I think the two primary ones that. Kind of stick out um however you kind of want to phrase it all right so let's dive into a little bit of the exegetical discussion sean you want to read the passage for us there
1: uh sure
0: i think i put it there
1: <laughs> um i don't see it actually i can call that up real quick though okay um right. 714 let me switch versions real quick um so
0: 7:14 can you read know, the can you read 14 through 25 just so we can get an overview of the whole passage yes and then we can then we'll dive into the the specifics
1: absolutely for we know that the law is spiritual but I am carnal sold under sin for what I am doing I do not understand for that what I will to do that I do not practice but that what I hate that I do Now, if it is I who do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin.
0: Thank you, Sean. So it's important to understand. So this is the section that's in question here. Okay. It's not the whole chapter of of Romans seven. It's simply the, um, this really the ending of Romans seven. Um, so Paul, in Chapter Seven, has been laying out an argument of the role of the law, right? So, from Chapter Six, he talked about the distinction between um, being a slave to sin, slave to righteousness, and that we should not be living in a sinful lifestyle. Then he moves in Chapter Seven to talk about um, what the role of the law is, how it plays a role in in showing us our sin, how the law is good, that even though it shows us our sin, that doesn't mean that the law is evil or that the law is bad, it's a good thing. The law is spiritual; it's from God, but it does show us our sin. Verses seven and eight, and chapter nine are very clear about this. It convicts us. And so Paul says, "I wouldn't have known what covetousness was." The law said, "Do not covet," right? And it and it convicted him of that sin. So it it's a constant um, it's a constant standard by which we're checking ourselves with, and that is condemning us. It's also showing us that we can't keep it, and that we um, are condemned because we fall short of it. But the role of the law is to convict. The role of the law is to show us God's holy standard. We do see this, uh, I guess you could say, in chapter three, after that long section where he describes man's condition, he talks about um, both Jew and Gentile being under the law, and the law being that which really condemns us, shows us our sin. Now, so this is the theme that Paul is bringing here, and it's important to keep this in mind as we're going through uh, verses 14 through 25. He hasn't changed. Uh, his overall topic. He's continuing along the same lines that he started with. Um, So that's the context we find ourselves in. Um, And it's also important that we come to this with a proper hermeneutical methodology, right? Um, We have to understand when we're coming to this first, what the nature of an unbeliever is. Um, We have to be careful not to... um, just mine out of 14 through 25, or even chapter 6, and um, we'll get a little bit into that here soon, on what an unbeliever looks like. Um, there are other clear places in Scripture that do bring out who or what an unbeliever's characteristics look like, and we should use those in our understanding of um, what Paul is talking about here when he's bringing out this sin that he is struggling with and dealing with uh, when he's talking about being soul under sin and such. So having a proper hermeneutical methodology and understanding what an unbeliever is is vital to understanding what this passage uh, is about. Then um, and, and this is where our confession, the second London, is helpful. Um, chapter one, paragraph six talks about, you know, how we should take the clear passages and use those to interpret the less clear passages, right? Um, And it should help to help us to inform our understanding of those things. Um, So if we understand uh, from other places in Scripture, taking the broader narrative of the Scriptures on what they've clearly defined an unbeliever to look like, that should absolutely come into bear on what we're talking about here. Yes, the immediate context is helpful, but if we know in other places of Scripture where expressly an unbeliever's characteristics and their demeanor are laid out, that should absolutely come into bear in our understanding um, of this passage. Nishan, if you want to take us a little bit there into paragraph
1: 1-7. Yeah, sure. Um, so paragraph 1-7 reads, All things in the Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some place to Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned and do use of ordinary means may attain it to a sufficient understanding of them. Um, so the scriptures are not equally clear. Um, mm-hmm. And we need to use other scriptures to interpret our view of scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. Um, we don't want to bring something external to the scriptures. That's inappropriate. We want to let the scripture speak. Um, and if we have trouble f- um trouble understanding it, the best place to go is other scriptures that might deal with the topic. Yep,
0: that's very true, and that's what we would call the analogy of faith, Um, and we were actually talking about this as a group the other day um, as it relates to John Owen, but the analogy of faith is a very helpful tool to help keep us, like Sean said, from importing things that are outside of the scriptures into scripture that don't need to be there, and it helps us to ensure that we're being consistent with Scripture as a whole, because as Christians, we do believe that the Scriptures are consistent. One book is not pitted against another, um, or one verse is not pitted against another verse. They must read consistently. If God is truth and He has spoken to us truthfully, and He is um, consistent with His nature, then he's going to speak truth in His Word. It's not going to have contradiction. It's not going to have inconsistencies. Um, albeit there are things that are difficult to understand and work through. Um, so that's that's another hermeneutical framework that we have to bring to the Scriptures. Um, letting Scripture interpret Scripture helps us to stay consistent with other passages of Scripture. So we're reading the Scriptures how God intended for us to read them as coming from the God who is truth itself. So that's a very basic um, understanding of, of reading the Scriptures. And Sean, did you have anything else to add?
1: Um, yeah, before we get into the, uh, the, more nitty gritty exegesis, I just wanted to broadly talk about the use of the present here. I think for most people reading through this passage, at least the initial reason why they come to the position that Paul is speaking of himself currently as a believer is the use of the present tense that you see throughout the passage, uh, I know that um, some on the other, other who hold other positions would take this as just the use of a historical present that he's speaking as if he were present, but he's referring to himself in the past. And I, I just wanted to comment that it, it would seem to me to be an odd use of the historical present here. Um, normally in narrative sections, you'll see like an interplay between the, the past and the present, the present being used sort of for emphasis Um Whereas here it's just all um, uh, all present tense, and you don't really see anywhere explicitly laid out that's giving you an indication that I've, I've switched to switched talking about myself in the past, even though I'm using the present tense. Now, our brothers who would hold the other position um, would uh, see this as a use of the historical present for theological reasons, because they're going to to want to say this can't be talking about Paul as a uh, as a um, Believer for reasons that we'll get into, so they're still they're still practicing good hermeneutics in that sense. But um, at least to me, just broadly looking at this passage, it would seem to be a very odd use to the historical present if that's what's going on.
0: So it's interesting. Um, so as I was reading Lloyd Jones, I struggled with this, you know, and using the use of the uh, the present tense language as an argument for it. Talking about a believer, um, I, I guess. I'm not convinced either way in terms of whether it's ref- the present tends as being referring to the past or not. Um, what Lloyd-Jones talks about something called the dramatic present. Mm-hmm. And he kind of talks about how you can speak of yourself in the, you know, speak of something mm-hmm. that happened in the past as now to make a point. Um, so while I do believe this is talking about a believer, um, I don't know if I would base, I wouldn't base the argument that it's talked mm-hmm. about a believer on this. Cause I think it is kind of, there's questions surrounding, you You could go either way with it, I guess, in my for, opinion.
1: For me, the the biggest thing would be, I would expect some sort of indication that he switched to referring to himself in the past, um, even if he is using the dramatic present. And I don't really see that. It's, it seems to be more that there's theological reasons that people are trying to say that that's what's going on here, as opposed to something immediately in the passage that demands it.
0: Yeah, I can see that because there is a the shift is sudden right it's mm-hmm. like he's talking about himself in the past in Romans 7 or or talking about the past i should say mm-hmm. and then he shifts automatically to the present which mm-hmm. you know kind of is odd it kind of it's very sudden it's like whoa okay mm-hmm. what's going on here um so yeah yeah i can see that all right so let's dive into the passage. So we'll read verses uh, 14 and 15 and then talk. And we'll, we'll kind of go through in sections. We're not going to go verse by verse. We're just going to, you know, take sections and talk about them. So uh, verses 14, and 15, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. So this is where it gets a little bit into kind of a tongue twisty kind of uh, reading, because he he bounces back and forth between what he likes to do, what he doesn't want to do, and then himself, and then what's not himself. Um, so it's it can be a little confusing to read. But again, Paul is continuing his discussion of the law and what its function is. Again, that, that has to be drilled into our minds that he has not changed discussion, okay? He's just really, he, what he's doing is he's talking about an application of what he's talking about. But the law's role is still being discussed here broadly. Um, he notes that the law is spiritual, and then he contrasts this with what he sees in himself. This, uh, you know, this carnality that he's seeing uh, being brought to himself, and then he uses this term uh, "sold under sin." Um, and I think that uh, this is used by some to really to be enough to settle the case that this is, an, um, this is talking about an unbeliever. You know, in light of Romans 6, that says we're not slaves to sin. He says I'm sold under sin, basically saying I'm a slave to sin, so therefore that settles that it's done. This is a pagan because a, a believer cannot be a slave um, to sin. Um, let's see here. I had something from uh, Lloyd-Jones. He said the general charge was that... Um, He was dismissing the law altogether and saying that the law was of no value all that charge he answers in the first six verses of chapter seven. So, again, he's continuing the discussion um, on what the law is and applying that here. But I think an important passage to look at when we're understanding what carnality means, um, and we'll address this and then sold under sin. But he says, I'm carnal. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's speaking of himself as a pagan. Okay, because Paul does use this language and applies this explicitly to born again believers. First uh, Corinthians three, uh, one through four, where he calls these Christians carnal, because they were essentially they, they had all kinds of sinful problems in their church, um, and there was even one who was living in an incestuous relationship. But Paul called that these Christians carnal. Right? He didn't call them pagans. He didn't call them unbelievers. He assumed that they were Christians, but still used this term carnal to describe them. And it's very clear if you jump forward to chapter 6 in First Corinthians that he's talking about believers because he references them as being washed and sanctified as, in contrast to their former life. So he's understanding this church as regenerate and as uh, believers, but he's still referring to them as carnal. So just because the word carnal is used does not necessarily mean He's talking about himself as a pagan. This can be applied to believers um, in a very specific, qualified way. Okay, I think that's important to point out. Then you jump forward to this section sold under sin. So you can take this in two different ways. Right. It can either be that Paul is a slave to sin, as is laid out in in chapter six, which would make him an unbeliever. Right. There wouldn't be any hope for him at that point. Um, or he's a Christian who has indwelling sin that he's struggling with, and there's maybe a certain act you know a certain aspect of him that is still, quote, sold under sin that still is fleshly, that hasn't been fully sanctified yet, in spite of his status as a new believer and a regenerate. Um, and so Paul is going to lay out in the preceding or in the uh, subsequent verses, uh, what it means to be sold under sin. And this is another thing that we have to keep in mind. Um, we need to let Paul define what these terms mean. People tend to jump to chapter 6 and say, well, you know, sold you know it says we're not slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness, and he says I'm sold under sin, so therefore he must be a pagan. Well, not necessarily. Paul fleshes out what he means by that, by being uh, sold under sin. So I, I think that's very important to keep in mind. Um, I want to read a somewhat lengthy section here from John Gill, and I'm going to be referencing Gill multiple times in here. He is very helpful commentary um, on this. Um, He says, For when the apostle says, I am carnal, his meaning is either that he was so by nature, and as we saw himself when sin through the law became exceedingly sinful to him, or as he might uh, be demonstrated from the flesh or corruption of nature, which was still in him and from the infirmities of the flesh he was attended with just as the Corinthians, though sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints are said to be carnal on account of their envying strife and divisions. And he references the passage we refer to first Corinthians three, or in comparison of the spiritual law of God, which was now before him and in which he was beholding his face as in a glass. And with which when compared the holiest man in the world must be reckoned carnal. He adds "Soul under sin, he did not sell himself to work wickedness as Ahab, First Corinthians twenty-one twenty-five. 25, and others. He was passive and not active in it. And when at any time he was with his flesh, served the law of sin, he was not a voluntary but an involuntary servant. Besides, this may be understood of his other eye, his carnal eye, his unrenewed self, the old man, which is always under sin when the spiritual eye, the new man, is never under the law of sin, but under the governing influence of the grace of God. So this is what we'll start to see is this dichotomy starts to come out in Paul where he talks about this fleshly eye and this renewed eye, right? So he's referring to himself in two different ways. It's important to let Paul determine what sold under sin means, right? He fleshes out what that means very clearly um, in the subsequent verses. Is there anything else you want to add, Sean?
1: Yeah, specifically with the sold under sin, I looked it up in the Greek, and it's actually a perfect tense verb. The exact verb escapes me at the moment, but it's a a perfect tense verb. And I understand that there's a little bit of a a dispute in the the modern context about what the perfect actually is supposed to be communicating in Koine Greek. But the traditional understanding is that it's a, a past tense action with abiding results into the present. Um. So the, a way that you could look at this um, is that, ha- more of having been sold under sin, that Paul was sold under sin, and um, it has abiding effects to him now. Um, when he was when he was unregenerate, he was sold under sin. It, it has abiding effects to the present, and that's why he still acts carnally. He was born in Adam, and we are not yet perfected, so we have that lingering effects of the fall even while we are uh, regenerate. So that's a that's a potential way to look at that uh, verb there.
0: That's very interesting. Yeah, and that would help us to avoid any notion that he is sold under sin as a pagan would be, right? Mm-hmm. And that there, there are different senses in which you can be sold under sin, mm-hmm. um, you know, and not sold under sin like a pagan. We can't be, obviously, or, or we're lost. Um, but he uses the terminology here, and I think as we'll demonstrate that uh, because this is in the context of him being a believer, there has to be a sense where we're sold under sin, um, if but certainly not in the way a pagan would. Um, just by the very fact that we have a fleshly nature that we war with continuously. Yep, that's a very good point. All right, verses 16 through 20. Paul goes on, he says, If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Excuse me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So now Paul is really fleshing out what sold under sin means in in his understanding in this specific context, right? We're not talking about Romans 6. We're talking about how Paul is applying it here in Romans 7. He's fleshing this out, no pun intended. Um, He's laying out this dichotomy, right? He's saying there's himself, which he sees as um, understanding that the law is good, that he wants to do that which is good, and recognizing that there is something bad within him, and then there's this fleshly side of him, this sin that dwells within him, uh, that he's having to deal with. So this dichotomy is is key because it will help us to um, to understand really what slavery to sin means. Right? If slavery to sin is simply in this, in terms of how Paul is using it here in Romans seven, if it's being applied in the same exact way. Um, that it would be for a pagan, then there would be no dichotomy here that could be um, brought to bear. There couldn't be. And and I think we'll flush that out a little bit here um, in, in a little bit. But let's look at, remember, we talked about this hermeneutical framework that we have to have. What does the scripture say an unbeliever looks like? Okay, we're going to go to some other places to see what that looks like, and hopefully that can help us to understand what paul is talking about here um in romans 7 so we'll, we're actually going to use romans uh the first few times here because paul does lay out in other places what a pagan looks like now let's jump up let's jump back to romans 3 romans 3 verses 9 through 18 it says what then are we better than they not at all for we have previously charged both jews and greeks that they are all under sin as it is written there is none righteous no not one there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They all have they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So there's. This description of the unbeliever talks, and this is applying to both Jews and Greeks. Remember, Paul is having to deal with Jews who thought they were better than the Greeks because they had the law, and Paul's saying, no, you guys are all in the same boat. You guys are all sold under sin, and you all um, are in this boat where you have violated the law of God, and you cannot do good at all in your sinful state, and that's important to keep in mind. Remember, Paul is describing this dichotomy where he wants to do good, he's desiring to do good, and he sees the law of God as good. However, Paul's description in Romans 3, it's clear that those things that Paul is wanting to do are good things. But there is no good that an unbeliever can do in Paul's description in Romans 3. That's important to keep in mind. Jump ahead to Romans 8. Romans 8, 7 through 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, this is not talking about a Leighton Flowers interpretation where if you just happen to be sinning, therefore you're not pleasing God just because you're in that state of sinning. That's not what this is talking about. This is a contrast between a believer state, one who's walking in the spirit, and one who is walking in the flesh, the pagan state. Okay, Um, so those who are in this carnal mindedness, who are lost, who haven't been regenerated, they cannot please God. And this is consistent with Romans chapter three. So, again, this is important to keep in mind as we look at Romans 7. Then jumping back to Romans 1, Romans 1, 21 through 23, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Um, Oh, you know what? I think I copied the wrong one. Ah. Um, But we all, we (laughs) mistake on my part. Um, But we all know this passage, Romans 1, uh, beginning at verse 18. I had 21 through 23. but Basically, it has the same sentiment that the, the pagan is walking away from God and walking in a way um, that is in no way pleasing to god they don't care about the things of god they're suppressing the truth they don't want anything to do with god they're creating idols in their own minds and following their own passions Uh, let's look at ephesians uh, 2 1 through 3 and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the loss of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And this sentiment is followed in Colossians 2.13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven forgiven you all trespasses. So the person described in Ephesians 2 is not... Uh, loving the things of God, they're walking. And this idea is it's a lifestyle. It's the way somebody's living their life in a, you know, this is their, their lifestyle, who they are, right? This is how someone is living. They're walking around pagan-like. They're walking after the prince of the power of the air. They're walking after the flesh, fulfilling the desires. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They're, they don't love the things of God in any way. Um, And then uh, Genesis 6-5, this is a famous passage. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And this is a very grim picture, and is consistent with Romans 3. Their intents of their heart were only evil continually, and there was no real desire to honor and glorify God. And our confession would even point out that there are things that are apparently good, that look good on the surface, and from a human standpoint, we can call them, quote, good. But really, as it relates to God, they're sinful, right? So this makes everything that an unbeliever does sinful in some way, shape, or form. And then finally, First uh, John 2, 3 through 6. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him for this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So a Christian is going to walk in obedience to God, Not obviously not in perfection. John makes that clear in the preceding chapter, but there is going to be a lifestyle of normal obedience in the the Christian's life, and uh, we definitely do not see this uh, I know him, but does not keep his commandments in in this understanding, or in, in Romans 7 here. Uh, I know I threw a lot out there, but Sean, do you want to add anything to that before we move on?
1: Um, just more, more of the the personal experience side. Um, obviously, when you come to the Scriptures, personal experience is not uh, the lens by which you should interpret the Scriptures, and I'm not, right. I'm not telling people to do that. Um, but... I find that this fits very well with my personal experience that as an unbeliever, when I recognized that sinning was um, going to be my destruction, uh, I couldn't stop myself. I was the slave to sin in that sense. Um, now, since becoming a believer, I very much resonate, which what I think is with what I think Paul's saying here at that. Um, I'm not the same way I was But there's definitely still a war um, within me in regards to sin. And oftentimes, I'm thinking to myself, why did I do that? I knew better. I didn't want to do that. Why did I end up doing that? Um, It fits very well with my experience. Again, experience is not the way to interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. But in terms of corroborating evidence, I feel like um, the believer's experience does corroborate Um, that this is what Paul's
0: talking about here. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, And it's good that you emphasize, yeah, that personal experience doesn't dictate what the text means. But yeah, there is a corroboration aspect to it. You're like, yeah, okay, the scriptures say this, and I see this in myself, Mm -hmm. um, and it's consistent with what I see. And I know I'm a believer because of what other passages of scripture talk about what a believer looks like. Um, But yeah, because really this dichotomy that we're talking about here that Paul presents isn't present in the unbeliever, and I think that's the point to take home from these um, from these other passages that we've looked at. The unbelievers state he does not love the things of God, he has no care for the things of God, he might go through the motions, you know, a Roman Catholic goes through the motions all the time, they pretend to love the law of God, the Pharisees thought they loved the law of God, but they missed the point, right? They They didn't really understand it and really submit to it and really obeyed it. Um, so there really is no love of God for the pagan, and if there is this dichotomy that is present in us as believers, um, that means that we are saved, this struggle that we have, this realization that the law is good, that um, there is good uh, as it relates to the law of God, and and that it's pointing out things that are not good within me, and a desire to turn away from those things, that struggle Can only be characteristic of a believer because a pagan doesn't care about these things. It's not characteristic of him. Um, He's walking away from God as fast as he can. The Christian wants to obey God, but still is struggling with this internal reality of sin. Um, Yeah, so I think we'd be in a pretty dire state if this wasn't talking about a believer. Um, I think it would cause despair because it's like, well, we see this within us, but does that mean maybe I'm not saved? Even though I see these other places in scripture that indicate I am, you know, it can, I think it can cause unnecessary confusion.
1: Yeah, I was going to bring this up more towards the end where we were concluding, but I'll, I'll bring it up now. Uh, why Why is this section of Romans 7 here? Um, because you do have it in between two sections that seem to be very much talking about how the believer is not under the domain of sin. Uh, but I think that's that's the point there uh because if you didn't have the section to balance things out it would lead um or it would tend itself to um believers thinking like wow like i should not be under the domain of sin whatsoever and like i i sin far more than i want to i don't want to sin at all but like i i I see all the sin in my life am i really a believer the fact that this sits here in between Romans six, the end of Romans six and the beginning of Romans eight uh, serves to moderate what exactly we think of those passages and how they, uh, how they apply to the believer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like a, it it maybe like a reminder of where we are. Mm-hmm. And then as we'll see in Romans eight, it's kind of like this conclusion of our hope, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We find in Christ and Romans six is just law, law, law. Um, so it's, yeah. And, and, into Romans seven, but yeah, that's a very good point. Um, John Gill kind of talked about this on uh, verse 20. He says the same conclusion is formed here as in Romans seven seventeen, not with any view to excuse himself from blame and sinning, but to trace the lust of his heart and the sins of his life to the source and fountain of them, the corruption of his nature and to ascribe them to the proper cause of them, which was not the law of God nor the new man, but sin that dwelt. In him, so Paul is very careful. He's not saying, "Well, sin, you know, I, I'm not the one doing it necessarily." He's talking about this voluntary ness of sin, right? He's he's not submitting to it like Ahab submitted to sin, like uh, uh, Gil talked about earlier. But it's this genuine struggle that he has. He wants to obey the law of God. He sees it as good, but he still sees sin there with him that he is struggling with and falls into, and is having to go back and and try to. To um, do it all over again. Um, so yeah, this duality I think helps us uh, not to fall into some of these pitfalls on either side about what it means to be sold under sin. And you could even apply the concept of slavery to sin not just in the pagan sense, but I think you can take what Jesus you know Jesus says that he who sins is a slave to sin. I think that can be applied um, just as much here as well because if there's if you are sinning, in any way, I think it's safe to say from Jesus's words that you are a slave to sin, um, or we would be perfect if, if we weren't. But we obvious, but we distinguish, as, as Brother Barcellus likes to say, we distinguish, right? We distinguish between the understanding of slavery to sin as it relates to the pagan, where it's all-encompassing of the person's nature, and they can do no good, and then a part of us as Christians who still sin uh, in this life, but aren't ruled by it in the sense that it's overtaking our entire being in person to where we can do no good. There is a genuine struggle and there is victory there. Um, and I think that's a key aspect too. the Christian will have victory over sin in their life. Not perfectly, but there will be victory. If there's no victory, you're not a Christian. There will be obedience. And, and the scriptures make that very clear as we've see- saw in first John chapter two. Um, But let's close out of this chapter, or at least these verses here. So we're going to look at 21 through 25. I offend then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind, I find myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So basically, he's summing up the matter. He's talking about that dichotomy, and then he says, okay, so I serve God with my mind, with the flesh, I serve sin. That's what I mean to when I'm talking about being sold under sin. And again, the role of the law is still coming to play here. Instead of just condemning him, though... It's showing him his sin as a believer, and it's fleshing out um, those areas that he needs to work on, that he needs to repent of. And it's constantly pointing out those things. Um, But Paul doesn't cry out with a hopeless cry. He says, a wretched man that I am, but he realizes there is um, true freedom in Jesus Christ, um, and that's who he looks to. Um, And and again, this is another evidence of of being a a Christian. Does the law... um, convict those who in a in a real sorrowful repentant way does it really does it convict pagans generally unless god is working on them no no unless they're being saved and god is showing them their sin unto salvation they don't really see it for what it is um it it might convict them they might have a guilty conscience and they i'm sure they do to some extent um but it's not going to um really bring them to this understanding that they are it's really sinful and they really should be doing the opposite and um, really trying to do it they might be convicted and don't care and they're going to continue on in their pagan ways um, so that is another characteristic that we see here in romans 7 that is not characteristic of the believers defined by scripture um, and we have to be careful too we don't want to say that the law of god is somehow only restricted to showing sin to someone Um, as a pagan, right? And I think that goes into what I said. It it continues to play a role in the believer's life as well. And then there's the curious language that we see uh, in here as well. He says, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. If this was talking about an unbeliever, how can that be? How can a pagan delight in the law of God? How can he delight... In the law of God. now you might say, well maybe he's just you know as a Pharisee delighting in the law of God because they had a passion for the law of God. there's no doubt about that. Um, maybe they just had an outward passion for the law of God, but that doesn't account for the real um, dichotomy that he's dealing with in his in his being struggling with sin and, and seeing the law as good. and he also says that he wills to do good. He doesn't just see the law as a good thing and, and and sees the law that he loves, but he wants to do that which is really good. And again, this probably doesn't fit a pagan, as we've seen from those passages in Scripture. Does a pagan love that which is good? No. He can't even do good, because the desire to do good is a good thing in and of itself, right? The desire to submit to the law of God is only something that comes from the Spirit of God. That's not something that comes from a heart that is totally encapsulated by sin and totally corrupted by their sinful nature. They love their sin. They don't want anything to do with God. Um, and we can see from the Pharisees that, you know, Paul calls the law in verse 14, he calls it spiritual, right? The Pharisees didn't see that at all. They missed the point uh, by miles and miles on that one. Um, a good place to look is Mark chapter seven with the discussion of hand washing, right? Jesus, Jesus, you know, they got all up in the apostles business because they weren't washing their hands before they ate and they introduced their tradition into the law of God and they lay aside the commandment. They missed the point of the of God's law entirely and introduced their own laws that they had to keep. And Jesus called them out on it. They were masters at missing the point of the law, doing all these external things, but not really understanding the substance or the spiritual aspect of the law and what it really meant. Um, so it there's, you know, this is not the characteristic that we see here. And Paul sees this, you know, this understanding of this love of the law as having to do with the inward man. This is something that is in him. This is not some kind of external rote action that he's doing. It's a real desire that he has in his inward man. And and this plays into that um, duality. Um, and, and this is why we can't treat the, you know, the slaves of righteousness understanding that we see in Romans chapter six, as an exact parallel in terms of jurisdiction or um, extent of slave to sin um, that we see in in Romans uh, six, since being slave a slave to sin really is all encompassing of the person and their nature, right? Um, if we utilize slave to righteousness in the in the same way, even unintentionally, it can lead us to kind of a form of sinless perfectionism, and that's kind of where you logically end up if you don't allow for some qualification of what slave of righteousness means. If you just simply make it a parallel with slave of sin, um, and I think that they do this unintentionally, um, then you're going to end up with sinless perfectionism. So you, you have to qualify it. And when you end up qualifying it, you're ending up sounding a lot like Paul is talking about in Romans 7. Well, yeah, we still have inward sin that we deal with. We still have to struggle with it then how is that different than what we're talking about here in Romans chapter 7, right? If you're basically landing in the same uh, place. And Paul, even in Colossians, he talks about this duality too. Colossians 3.5, he says to put to death what is earthly in you. Um, And that assumes that there is something in us that isn't supposed to be there, that we're to be fighting against and putting to death, even though we are the new man. Um, So this concept, is found in other places of scripture. So, you know, this is why understanding what a believer and unbeliever looks like, and not just simply imposing these terms um, into Paul's understanding of what a uh, a believer looks like or what it means to be sold under sin is very important. And Sean, do you want to add anything to that?
1: Yeah. I want to uh, focus on the, uh, the last two verses here, um, mm-hmm. a wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from the, body of this death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh the law of sin. Um, Paul as an unbeliever isn't thanking God through Jesus Christ his Lord. That's that's not something he would he would be doing as an unbeliever. Um, it's very clear that this is present tense Paul. Um, and you'll note that there's this interplay of it's smack in the middle of him discussing theoretically, according to the other position, things that are happening in the uh, in Paul's past, right? The very next uh, or uh, verse twenty-five, the second half. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. But this this praise to Jesus is right in the middle there. That's not what I would expect if this had been all past tense, Paul. Um, I wouldn't expect this this present um present um praising of, of jesus to be in there
0: especially um, as a jew or a pharisee yeah
1: yeah exactly um i did hear um one person say that th- this is just paul breaking out into praise of jesus because of uh, what he's done and then immediately going back uh to talking about himself in the past tense um i don't i don't uh, agree with that interpretation I would think it would be very difficult then to, after immediately praising um, the Lord to then say, so then with the mind, as if it's like summing everything else up that came before it. You know, if if this is your summation, if this is your, your, so then um, I would expect that to, and the summation is still present tense. I would expect that to be uh, what had been, a summation of what had been happening before. I expected it to be basically be in line with that. And for the previous uh, two sentences to be talking about Paul as a believer, um, I would expect that therefore the lessons to be uh, Paul as a believer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's very helpful. And yeah, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect a unregenerate Paul, or a Pharisee, Paul to crowd Jesus in that way, and seeing Jesus as really the hope for this wretchedness that's within him. Mm-hmm. That is only the cry of someone uh, of someone um, who is regenerate, um, and, and we're, you know I think we've demonstrated that pretty well with what an unbeliever looks like in other places of Scripture. Um, but yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Um, so, kind of in closing here. Um, we want to address a couple of places I've touched. I just touched upon this a little bit. Uh, Romans six and Romans eight. Um, Cause these are places that are used um, especially Romans six. I've heard this used as a way of saying, well, Paul is soul under sin. He's therefore he must be a pagan because he says we're not slaves to sin in Romans six. This came uh, this came out of grace community church in San Antonio, Texas with Tim Conway. And uh, I think he's changed his mind. Uh, Sean, I seem the case. But. I
1: seem to recall like within like the past year hearing him say something that he had changed his mind on interpretation. But I, I could be wrong. I could be thinking of something else, but that okay. was my recollection.
0: Okay. But yeah, that it, it did come out. And I and Paul Washer, at least at one point, did believe that this section is talking about Paul as an unbeliever in Romans seven. But Romans six is a key passage that came out of um Tim Conway and there's probably others that have used it too, but that one sticks in my mind. Um, But as we've talked about, if you say that slave to righteousness, um, or I'm sorry, that being a slave to sin in the sense that Paul is talking about here must be in the sense of an unbeliever, then slaves to righteousness has to be um, all-encompassing as well, unless you qualify it, but then you fall into saying, okay, then how does that, how do those other places in scripture relate to what Paul is saying here in Romans 7, which would demonstrate the duality and struggle that Paul is showing here? Um, so you really get into kind of this this word game if you're not careful and you have to you have to be careful to define your words clearly um, and go outside of Romans a little bit and look at those places that speak more clearly and then bring them back and apply them um, here as well. I think we have to be careful with that. Just going to Romans 6 doesn't settle the issue. It's helpful and can help to inform the discussion, but it doesn't settle the issue in saying that Paul is a pagan. Um, and I think we've demonstrated that already. Um, but if you jump to Romans chapter 8, um, if and this could be for someone who might say, well, it says that we are therefore justified as a result of Paul's cry in Romans 7. You know, therefore means it's like this... You know, it, it flows from whatever Paul is talking about before, and that's not necessarily the case. <clears throat> and um, I want to read just John Gill here on 8. one. He says, for this now, you know, <coughs> excuse me, where Paul says that, you know, there's therefore now no condemnation. He says, for this now is not an adverb of time, but a note of elation, meaning like a, a summation or a summary or a conclusion, a note of elation. The apostle inferring this privilege either from the grace of God, which issues in eternal life, Romans 6.23, or from that certain deliverance believers shall have from sin for which he gives thanks, Romans 7.24 and 7.25. So this means that this isn't, Romans 8.1 isn't a result of Paul's cry. This, you know, justification isn't a result of Paul's cry at the end of Romans 7. But it really is summing up the hope that we have to be freed from sin, and or the grace of God that we have in eternal life, just laying that out in a summary sense that this is the believer's hope. This is the believer's hope. Um, And so that argument really wouldn't work if we're going to use Romans 8 in that sense to try and say, well, this is a result of Paul crying out in a salvific way. Therefore, he became saved, so he couldn't have been saved in Romans um, 7. And so what this means, you know, in in Romans 8 where he talks about walking after the Spirit instead of the flesh is really in the same thought process as Romans 7. It doesn't change it at all. It's still in the context of talking about a believer. So Paul isn't talking about um, any kind of different thought here. He's continuing the same discussion. His lifestyle is primarily disposed towards righteousness and obedience while sin is still present with him, and he struggles with it continuously. And then, not to mention what we talked about with Romans eight seven, that makes clear that the the carnally minded person, that person who is not saved, cannot please God. And we've already demonstrated that this person in Romans seven does please God, and so therefore cannot be um, a pagan. Uh, any closing remarks, Sean, on that?
1: Yeah, I've got I've got two there. I think having an understanding of what Paul's setting up here is, is an excellent interpretive key actually to Romans eight. Um, because in Romans seven, he talks about, um, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. So he's setting up a mind, uh, mind, uh, I guess flesh or or sinful nature dichotomy here. Um, and then you go to Romans eight and you, you, you see some pretty, um, Uh, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit, right? That's a pretty absolute statement. But then he elaborates a little bit. Verse six, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So for Paul, Paul, to be in the flesh is to be fleshly minded. But we just saw in Romans seven, he set up a contrast between being spiritually minded and fleshly otherwise. Um, So having that understanding, I think actually really helps um, understand what's going on in Romans eight. And then finally uh, for my, uh, my conclusion here, this is the things we've been talking about uh, aren't the only spot that Paul uh, talks about this as, as Dan's brought up, but I want to do uh, bring up specifically Galatians five because I think he's in much much abbreviated form talking about a lot of the same things he's been talking about in Romans six seven and eight. Um, so uh, I'll start at verse sixteen here. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Um, and then, uh, do I want to skip down? Um, I'll skip down to verse 24. The, the, uh, verses in between are talking about various sins and uh, various fruits of the spirit. But, um, Uh, Verse 24, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. So Paul in Galatians here is very clearly talking to people that he at least uh, he thinks are still believers. Obviously, there are some in Galatia that I suspect he doesn't think are believers at all. But uh, he starts this section or at least uh, within this section, he addresses them as brethren. Verse 11, and I brethren. Verse 13, for brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Um, He's addressing these as brethren, right? And he here it says the exact same thing um, in in a much shorter form that he does in Romans 7. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. That sounds exactly like what we've been talking about in Romans seven and there's no controversy here that he's speaking to current believers, hmm. um, or at least, uh, people he's addressing as current believers. Um, he's not addressing them as, uh, as, as pagans. So it would seem to me that other parts of scripture are clear that this is a present reality for, uh, for believers. Um, you do still have a lot of the same language, um, Uh, uh, the absolute language this I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh sounds very absolute but uh, similarly uh, if we uh, live in the spirit let us also walk by the spirit Uh, the whole reason Paul has to say let us walk by the spirit is because as a believer even though you are indwelt by the spirit you may not always be walking by the spirit and that's when sin has its opportunity to strike up and cause, uh, cause this war within you.
0: But Um, that also doesn't make you an unbeliever necessarily.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So here I think it's, it's Romans six, seven, and eight in a much more abbreviated form where you have, uh, you are, you are dead to sin. Um, sin is still warring within you. Uh, and you need to, you need to uh, put it to death essentially, but it is still war within you. Um, So, And as far as I know, there's not too much controversy about that passage. At least I I, I haven't heard any. Uh, So I would say that that's a a fairly good spot to color our understanding of what's going on in Romans 7.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, you you continuously see this dichotomy when Paul is talking about Christians and and sin and their relationship to sin. Um, So it... That dichotomy we see in Romans chapter seven as well. Um, and and I think with Romans eight, it is important that we see those as states of being. Like you are, if you're carnally minded, this is talking about this spiritual state that you are in as a pagan and not talking about just simply someone who might be, you know, struggling with sin or they do sin as a Christian, um, and then you know they're not pleasing God just because they're in that state they happen to be in of doing that thing that is contrary to the law of God. No, this is your spiritual standing before God that is being discussed here. Um, So that's important uh, to understand. But I think that's all the discussion we have today. Um, This is a controversial um, passage of Scripture for sure and continues to spark debate. Hopefully what we've provided today is helpful in your own study of the passage. Um, But with that, we thank you all for listening. Everyone have a great
1: Lord's Day, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week.